I am Sergio Brodsky, and I'm a brand and foresight strategist. And I'm Jazz Giuliani, the editor of Marketing Mag. Welcome to Futurecast, the podcast where we talk with professional futurists, renowned academics, and high-profile business leaders from around the world. In this series, we think about the future so that we can meaningfully change the present. The time is now. Join us for better futures. This week, we're back speaking with Sophia Bazil, who is an independent foresight researcher. To hear part one of this conversation, listen to episode 13. So in this, in the, in this highly politicized world of commerce and brands, what, what is the good, the bad and the ugly of being a black consumer? And what have brands and marketers been doing really well? And where can the industry also get a bit better? As like social media is this thing that is the most powerful tool we have not been ready for. So <laughs> it's caused a lot of division and caused a lot of it, but it's also caused a lot of awareness raising and people are able to really be empowered to reflect on how they spend their money. So for a black consumer, the question that comes back to us is that they love black culture, like their ads, they might have a dancer or a rap song, but do you really love black people? And how have you shown that? And in this day and age on the internet, like you can be giving lip service in public and BLM as your profile picture, and you can have a diversity and equity initiative, but we will always find out what you're actually doing, right? Behind the scenes, what your hiring practices are, how you're treating employees of color, and it always comes to light. So there's people, for example, the tech giants who are getting some things right. It's like they're doing these initiatives where they're creating huge grants. They're committed to more diverse hiring practices. But then on the other side of the coin, they're, they've only recently started to question their contribution to US politics, right? Financial contributions and what candidates they're supporting. They've only recently begun to tamp down on hate speech and really put a concerted effort into the spread of disinformation. So these decisions, like there's no one fix approach fixes all. It's deeply complex because there's so many layers to this. There's, are you creating first, are you creating products with black people in mind and black buying power? And then what are the longer, or what is the real impact of your business practices. Like if you still have an all right board, then you're not really doing black people a service. And we'll know that we'll go, I'll go shopping for example, and I might come across something um, and I will click and I will look down and see who's on the board of directors and just see what kind of ads they're producing. And if there's not a certain number of faces or if I've scrolled too long and I haven't seen any models or any other brown and black faces, I'm going to leave <laughs> because I'm not represented there. So representation definitely, definitely matters. Well, we're talking about who's getting it wrong, right? So L'Oreal and beauty communities are a huge one. Like we mentioned, there's Eurocentric standards of beauty, and this is a huge, huge industry. And only after Rihanna's Fenty, for example, just absolutely killed it on its launch and continues to do so in their ads, that's when these major companies that have been around for like a hundred years started making darker shades of foundation and started trying to get a piece of the pie. But by then it's too late, right? Then you have people already wanting to go support black brands increasingly. 
Another one I had to laugh at, thanks to Black Twitter, was that Apple released the limited edition Black Watch, Black Unity, Red, Black, and Green. And it's like, for crying out loud, stop trying to sell us shit. Like, hire us, promote us, retain us. Share some of the wealth, you know? Give us a seat at the table. Give us some real empowerment. Like, we don't need to buy your watch. Wells Fargo is another example that blew up on Black Twitter. Black Twitter is like, <laughs> it's the truth. This guy went on and said, it's a huge San Francisco bank, right? And he goes on to say that, um, oh yeah, we don't have any much diversity in our company because there's a shortage of Black talent. And it's like, wait, hold on. <laughs> Screeching halt. Because Black women in the U.S., numerous studies show, are the most educated group with four-year college degrees and advanced degrees and growing. So where is this lack of talent you speak of, right? You're not looking. So we're looking to see the first stop is what they're doing publicly, like on social media, in their ads, what are they doing publicly? Then a little bit deeper digging, which we don't have to dig so far because somebody's going to pipe up and say, ah, actually, they're full of shit <laughs> because this was the experience that I had working for them. And they fired me for speaking out about this protest that took place because um, it wasn't aligned with their values, right? This happened to a model that worked for L'Oreal. They, they let her go because she spoke about these Charlottesville protests in 2017. Oh, yeah. So the internet yeah. is forever for all of us. <laughs> so brands need to be really, really, really more intentional about what goes on. I love the fact that ordinary people are empowered to speak their truths, right? It does come with other issues like the internet mob. It can go very awry and <laughs> we have to find some sort of in-between in these dialogues, but the information is out there and it's empowering to be able to choose how we spend our money. I'm a deep believer in spending with your dollars and I wish more people were like that. That's how we would affect real change. Corporations cannot be apolitical because they have more power to change society than governments do. They really do. I used to be very somewhat anti-corporate despite being a business management major. But then I had to switch in my thinking, like if you really want to implement real change and really tackle climate change and social justice issues and whatnot, corporations are the way to go. And these corporations are made of individuals. These individuals have grandchildren, but corporations don't have grandchildren. So how do we find a way to have them claim their personhood like they do for taxes and for different loopholes? <laughs> a corporate personhood really needs to be about the values they embody as well. It can't just be this selective, I want this tax break, <laughs> but I'm totally inhumane and destroying the environment and, and not really interested in culture and politics if it doesn't benefit my bottom line. Yeah, I love that sort of sense of, I guess, accountability that we're bringing now. And I love the the way that you describe Black Twitter. It's almost like a regulatory body, you know, to keep these brands in line and to call out the bullshit, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Before we were talking about casting in Disney and Marvel movies and things like that. And, and I love what you said about people appreciate Black culture but they don't appreciate black people. And I think that's a really important distinction. And that's something that does come up like when you see these, I guess, latent anti-black attitudes that come to light when black actors are cast as leads in The Little Mermaid is one that I particularly remember 
when Halle Bailey was was cast as Ariel. And you just see all this, you know, basically anti-black attitudes disguised as, you know, oh, we, we just want to be true to the story. No, it's just about the tradition. I guess these things come to rise when black people don't behave in the way that white people want them to behave, essentially. And you wrote about that a little bit in the article, and I would love it if you could unpack that idea a little bit more here for the listeners. Going back to that Orwellian quote, those who control history control the present and the future. The dominant narratives of history have created this story about black people that, quite frankly, way too many people, including black people, have become very accustomed to. And until the full history is told, since history is told is kind of like a coming of age story for Europe, like uh, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment is all from a very European perspective. But there's a quote I love about um, slavery having interrupted black history or Africa's history. It's not Africa's history, it interrupted it, right? So there was things going on for centuries and centuries. And until we understand those narratives, people are going to have these ideas about what blackness is. So that's where these microaggressions come from. Or, or you're uh, well-spoken for a black person, or you're pretty for a black girl. It's mm. because of this erasure on one side, but also contributing to that is that these portrayals are deeply embedded. And when you have places where people are not exposed to black people in real life, they're going to form these perceptions through what they take in in media, through film, through sports, through um, music, right? And certain things sell. So then you've had these different stereotypes of what black people are like, like the thug or the lazy person or the, you know, magical Negro sidekick. And people really do expect you to behave like that in person. Like um, in my travels, it's so funny because I don't feel a personal onus to show up and teach people what blackness actually is, which is everything <laughs> and nothing at the same time, if you understand what I mean. But it's kind of a default because I'm very privileged to travel, right? I'm part of some marginalized and underrepresented communities, but also I have this blue passport and I've been to a lot of different countries and showing up there is part of the edification of different populations there as well. And I hope that they take something from our interactions and are able to apply it in just understanding that things are far more complex and they need to kind of do their own, come to their own conclusions and have greater sources of information than just what's been given to them. Uh, people should go out of their way to watch black TV. Like when I grew up, we had Martin and we had all these different shows, A Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. The 90s Some were of great. <laughs> Yes, exactly. They are hilarious. I mean, I appreciate them more nowadays than I did back then. Mm. But there's only a few of those shows and shows today that are mainstream successful. So I think a good way to kind of begin to um, eradicate some of these lines between understanding Black culture is really to go and sit down and watch a Black show, right? They're just, um, there was a great article I read and it was I loved her candor and humility. She was like, at first, when I turned on the show, something was bothering me and I didn't understand why. And she realized it was because there was an all black cast. It just wasn't an easy experience to get sucked into the show and watch it from beginning to end. But the more you sit, it's like me going to China, which was a crazy experience and live, trying to live there. 
like you got to sit with people and you got to break bread with them and you will begin to understand all these underlying core tenets of humanity that we all have, right? We all have the same core desires and the same struggles. It's just sometimes those can be obscured by our perceived differences. Now, does I mean does that mean that I think we are all one and I don't see race and I don't see color as helpful? Absolutely not, right? So how do we take the best parts of our heritage and the legacies we've inherited, but transcend those things that have held us back to be better ancestors to those that come after us. Content Brain specializes in content creation across a diverse range of topics for many industry sectors. If you need help with content development for your blogs, thought leadership, white papers, video, podcasts, or special projects, talk to the team at Content Brains. You'll find links in our episode notes. If, if we turn the lens a little, bit, a little bit from the minorities to the majority, something that has exacerbated in recent years is political correctness and majorities feeling very afraid to speak up, to voice themselves, to say, no, I don't agree with Black Lives Matter for you know, these and that reasons. No, I don't agree with you know, so-and-so. Uh, and you know, extremes are never good. You know, this this, this uh, uh, discourse of, of being PC and uh preserving an opinion, preserving a view, and uh, not allowing people to step up when they see injustice or unfairness and other things is not good. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, being aggressive and violent is also equally not good, not constructive. Uh, it's not going to lead to anything that uh, uh, will, will deliver a better future for all of us. So what is this space in between through, through which we can start crafting a narrative of dignity for all, not just for the minorities, not just for the majority, but for ev- everyone? And what is this metaphor that we need to replace? So walls, uh, uh, you know, well, like pretty much we're replacing walls with bridges and allow the civil- civilizatory global brain and governance style that you wrote about to tr- truly flourish? Whew, that's a hard one. I got kind of some chills when I think about that. And this, this could be largely controversial, but I'm going to go ahead and say that the space in between requires some conciliation and a bit more accountability from dominant and majority populations. For example, when I came to Bali and I was thinking about how can QAnon and the wellness community converge? Like what do these alt-right people and wellness people have in common? And I began to think about it and reading about it and it was upholding these structures of whiteness that go back to a libertarianism, control over my body, it's the confluence of medical history, all this stuff, right? And black people are often called inflammatory and there's a lot of tone policing and there's, that's not the right way to protest. You know, Colin Kaepernick kneeled or raised his fist. That's not the right way to protest. And then neither is burning down buildings. So I think that from both sides, right, there needs to be a lot of more intellectual and epistemic humility. <laughs> Our experiences can kind of blur the truth and have us carry baggage that is not conducive (laughs) 
And that's not an overnight process. Like it's a lifelong one. If you think you've got it all figured out, then, well, I pity you because a life unexamined is a life not really worth living, as somebody once said, right? So in terms of people being afraid of being skewered on social media for making a mistake, I think it requires a bit more mindfulness and consulting. What is your real intention with this? There are people that are doing, I'm joining the discourse for purely financial purposes. This speaks to the values that commodify people rather than, you know, have a more purity in their purpose. Like it's not about humanity. It's about how can I use this to my advantage? There's other people that may genuinely care, but they are going to get it wrong. What I would say is that we need to look for the voices that are unheard, right? And I speak from a black perspective, but just from personal experience, one of the most confronting things I'm going through now is unpacking my quote unquote settler colonialism, having been born in the US, although my parents are from Haiti, <laughs> I have a lot of privileges. What about indigenous people, right? <laughs> so there are voices that are consistently unheard and we need to listen to those people because there are different ways of knowing. We need to question our knowledge systems, the different things that we've been taught show intelligence and intellectual, um, intellectual prowess and ability from psychology to the way medicine practice practice to what sells in different industries, right? This narrative has been created with very dominant structures. It's up to those people to cultivate a greater sense of accountability. If they know something's wrong, it's time to unearth those things and really ask oneself the really hard questions. We could have avoided a lot of what's going on right now if we sat down and had difficult discussions. There's tons of trauma in our shared global history. And as we know with other traumas like sexual assault, you can't just pretend these things did not happen because it's uncomfortable. It takes work and it takes reckoning and it takes atonement and we're not all gonna get it right. I've been wrong countless times on this journey, but I'm willing to feel all of the things that come along with that and continue asking myself questions and how can I do this better, right? It's, I, I feel a deep responsibility to eventually get this as right as I could. Yeah. And that sort of touches on that. I, I love that you speak about personal responsibility in that journey as well for people, because there is personal or individual narratives that need to be addressed as well as the sort of broader collective narrative, I suppose. And obviously, you know, as we, as you sort of touched on, no one can control what they were born into or what early narratives we consume. But I think it's, it's as simple as, as you said before, maybe just exposing yourself to different types of narratives, watching films, listening. You know, in, in my own life, I just try and listen to friends and try and diversify the things that I consume. But I think that maybe what gets lost in some of these de debates is that personal responsibility piece and doing that work to understand the perspective of others gets maybe, it gets, I guess, lost in white fragility or 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 in this sensitivity, I guess, or feeling like I, I come back to the, the quote that comes to mind, and I actually can't remember who it 
to attribute it to. But it's sort of like when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And that sort of comes to my mind with that, with white fragility. Um, in the article you published with us recently, you spoke about zones of influence. So when we think about that personal responsibility, what do you think are the personal first steps that non-Black people can take towards creating a more equitable society and why are zones of influence so powerful? Well, zones of influence are so powerful for all people, not just non-Black people. So I'll speak on that just from my perspective. You know, I'm, I mentioned before, I'm a very privileged person and with privilege comes responsibility. And we all have varying levels of this privilege. In terms of the majority population or non-Black people, because let's make it clear, this is not only about white fragility. White supremacy has created power structures that have anti-Black attitudes in Asian communities, in Jewish communities, in other marginalized communities. So this is far more complex than just um, the majority population. There are all kinds of different pockets that needs some tending to, right? So first educating oneself on the issues, like we said, like people have to be, just like we need to be increasingly comfortable with uncertainty, like it's not going anywhere. We need to just really embrace this and just be like, oh, well, I guess this is gonna be it. It's like a roller coaster, you know, exhilarating. You scream, you wanna cry sometimes, you laugh, <laughs> but this is just how it's gonna be. And the emotions that come with that are equally as volatile, but it's so important to do this work, right? Uh, it's so important to look at your situation around you and what resources you have that you can leverage to truly create equitable opportunities. In workplaces, are you truly reflecting your values of inclusion and diversity and equity. I hope those words go away at some point. Actually, somebody said something really good, which is it's not about diversity, equity, inclusion. It should be about diversity, equity, and belonging. Like it's not enough to just include people. Like, thanks for inviting me. But if you're not going to let me speak and value my ideas, then there's, there's really not an impact to be had here. So how can we give everyone a sense of belonging that... Um, all of us are valued. And it's not this thing about our individual rights, like this whole idea of, oh, my rights are being taken away because somebody else is getting more. There's enough freedom to go around for everybody. <laughs> so what we should be trying to do is strive towards collective freedom, right? So that's the number one thing that has to change. They've created these situations and they, I don't speak like these conspiracy theorists of these like lizard people who are playing us all like puppets. That's not what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about the powers that be the ones that decide a lot of things for us and how we're going to experience our lives on this earth and what resources we have access to. Their values are all jacked up, right? So while they keep deciding to enrich shareholders and to make decisions that are not good for the environment and that are really just of the algorithms that are profit-driven and capitalistic base, right, infused with these very human values that are problematic, then we're not going to be able to make process. So there's, everyone has a zone of influence and it takes some unpacking to think about 
how you might use that zone to make even the tiniest little changes. It goes from like me showing up at work and not having to explain my hairdo or have somebody pet me like a poodle. <laughs> that would be nice, right? But to broader things like hiring practices and creating opportunities to really focus on employee well-being and ideas of cultural competence and educating people, it's far more integrated. We can't continue to silo these different aspects of us, like our digital persona and our physical persona, away into these pockets. Everything melts together. And so we have zones of influence, multiple ones, in different spaces, on the internet, at work, in our families, amongst friends, where we patronize, who we choose to serve, and say that, okay, I'll take your money even though I hate your ideas and your values. Like it goes in all different directions. So it's really just up to the individual. And a lot of us, including the three of us sitting here today, have a lot more power and privilege and resources than people out there. So are we really using those to show up in the world responsibly? It's confronting at times. It's happened to me as a person who travels. I've had to think about, wow, you really just got annoyed that this person doesn't speak English. What, what, what entitles you to think that this person in their own country should speak English <laughs> and get like, annoyed with it, right? So there's confronting moments and it's like, it's super uncomfortable, but that's where the growth comes from. And, and, and that's what democracy is in the end of the day. We, we may have divergent opinions, but as long as we can hear one another and have a civilized debate, eventually and hopefully we'll come up to, to, to a situation that benefits everyone. It's not easy. It's, uh, uh, you know, it could be wishful thinking, but as we all recognize, there's a lot of work to do. But speaking of zones of influence, I think that very few parts of the world will, will, will be as influential as Hollywood. And I, I remember really, really well uh, how touched I was when I watched the movie Amistad from Steven Spielberg, which was also coined as the Black Schindler's List. And especially for, you know, someone who's Jewish like me and an, an immigrant as well. I've, I've left my country uh, 16, 17 years ago. And like you, I've been living in many different places with an imperfect English, with a very heavy accent and having to adapt myself to numerous situations. But, you know, when, when, the reason why I empathized with Amistad was, you know, this shared history. Jews also being enslaved, being, you know, persecuted forever and ever, and victims of uh, prejudice, anti-Semitism, and so many, many other things. But what we also observe and recognize is the fact that there are many of these Holocaust survivors that not, didn't just survive, but they had this, this post-traumatic growth. And here in Australia, we have many billionaires, successful business people, scientists, academics, and in many other you know, areas of, uh, of society that have been incredibly successful. And individuals like these, they are, they are a huge source of inspiration. And rather than going against those that may have put the Jewish community or Jewish individuals under distress or, you know, really, really bad situations, looking at those that thrived, succeeded and overcame those issues seems like a really good way to 
co-responsibility to yourself and say that the narrative is mine. I'm the author of my destiny. I'm the one who is going to turn the pages and create the chapters that I want for myself. And when we, you know, you as, as a black person, you know, when you're looking at other narratives that, that may have some similarities with yours, do you, do, do you interpret in this way? Do you, and do you think that one narrative can also benefit the other? Is there uh, uh, some uh, symbiotic relationship there? Oh, that's a hard one. And yes, to answer your question, yes. I ultimately do believe, especially, I mean, I, I, I saw Amistad as a teenager on a class field trip. <laughs> so I remember that movie well. And also, you know, having been a history teacher, one of the core themes, the first thing we taught was memory and bearing witness and why it's important to remember history and who do we trust to tell history. And some of the examples of the big um, historical events, if you will, that took place that we used to talk about dehumanization ultimately was slavery and the Holocaust and my students in the Bronx. Like that's when I kind of quote unquote won them about why we're gonna really dive into history. The Holocaust never failed to kind of really humanize everybody that's in the room. And so that being said, just going back to something we talked about before is that where's this middle line? I have to ask, or I have to just implore people to reflect. Like for me, people who are showing that they are in line with white supremacy and white racist, there's no middle line there for a lot of us because you are denying my very right to exist. And I think that's akin to Holocaust deniers. Like I cannot, I cannot. <laughs> People who deny the Holocaust are extremely dangerous, extremely dangerous, right? So that's one part of it. But yes, these stories about human resilience and what is possible, you know, our, our world, once the last Holocaust survivors are gone, is gonna be really, really missing some very powerful opportunities to educate around true humanity, true resilience. And resilience shouldn't be just how much oppression you can withstand. It's about transformation and transcendence, right? So there are these different narratives of people overcoming odds that are deeply inspirational. And that's why I think it's so important for companies and brands and people all together. If you look at marginalized communities and communities like Jewish people, women, transgender, people of color, we are incredible problem solvers. Look at what we've had to create with these obstacles in our way for centuries. Why would you not believe that we can pretty much accomplish anything with a bit more support and less resistance and hindrance. So on the one hand, it's definitely up to us <laughs> to go ahead and take narratives into our own hands and create those and find opportunities for ourselves. But on the other hand, people are tired too. <laughs> it's exhausting. It's exhausting to constantly be fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting, right? Maybe we just need to learn how to fight smarter which is why you see people creating their own brands or leaving the U.S. and going to live in different countries. Maybe we need to be more strategic about it and realize when we need to throw our hands up and just say, you know what, for me as an individual, 
I'm not going to be able to create my own desired future here or create my company or really live in my purpose and have the impact I want to have in the world. So that just takes a lot of self-awareness and reflection and just willing to trial and error things. I've made so many mistakes and had a really hard time living abroad in all these different countries. People think that they could, I could make them think I live a very charmed life, but this shit is hard, <laughs> you know, it's really hard on so many levels. So, but you're not going to get there until you're willing to take some risks, right? And they should become more calculated. If I was, I'm 37 now, ugh, 37 now, if I was still doing and making the same mistakes that I was making when I was 27 or when I was 30 and first moved abroad, then I'm not doing this life thing right, right? It's all about constantly moving towards more alignment and really being able to build on the experiences that you've had, both negative and positive. As tough as it's been being who I am, I'm really glad for that. I have a deep um, power for transcending difficult situations and I'm so adaptive and very, very resilient. And only recently, thanks to COVID, I'm seeing a lot of salient and significant transformation. <laughs> so thanks, COVID. <laughs> Wonderful. Let's let's hope that we all move towards a future where everyone matters and everyone is a part of these narratives that we're all crafting for ourselves individually as well as collectively. And on that note, thank you so much, Sophia. I really, really enjoyed having this conversation with you. Thank you so much. That was great. I enjoyed it as well. Futurecast is the Marketing Mag podcast series brought to you by Content Brains and presented by Marketing Mag. Futurecast is produced by Joanne Davies, head of Content Brains and publisher of Marketing Mag. And Jazz Giuliani, editor of Content Brains and Marketing Mag. Our executive producer is Sergio Brodsky with original music and audio production by Sam Boone. If you want further details on our podcast or our guests, please visit the episode notes in this podcast. Remember to subscribe to Futurecast so you never miss an episode.